0: Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail.
1: Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Behind the Scenes, brought to you by our partners in Quantum Metric this week. Coming up on today's show, we'll be joined by Erica Blair of the Rural Grocery Initiative, Erica will discuss not only the importance of rural grocery, but the current state of rural grocery, some interesting ownership developments for rural grocery stores, and best practices as well. Also, why it is important for each community to have their own grocery store, aside from the typical food desert platitudes that we so often hear in the media. It's a very insightful interview with Erica. We'll also discuss a couple of mall retailers, and we'll look ahead to a new development plan at a retailer that to this point has been growing on an almost exponential basis, but new leadership at that retailer, projecting maybe a different plan to future growth. A reminder that you can like us and rate us on any podcast delivery service you might check us out on, whether that be through Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your ratings certainly do Help others to find us. You can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Retail Podcast. Also, we're always looking for story and interview ideas, and we do our best to follow through on some of the interview ideas pitched by our listeners. So if you do want to reach out, you can drop us a line, retailpodcast at gmail.com. So we begin today's show in the news segment by turning towards the mall as Genesco and American Eagle both deliver earnings beats. and We'll start with Genesco, who owns a variety of mall-based brands, however, most of our US listeners will probably be most familiar with their Journey stores. Genesco, of course, also held Lids and their associated banners, but sold them off a little over a year ago in an effort to become more focused on footwear throughout the company. This pivot hasn't been unique for retailers over the past three to four years. We've seen retailers including Hibbett Sports, for example, become more footwear focused through acquisitions like their acquisition of City Gear or various initiatives that they've got. We've also seen Foot Locker and Finish Line really double down on footwear over apparel, even with the bloom in athleisure wear sales over the last three to four years. So not a surprise that Genesco also picking this path as shoes continue to fly off the shelves. By the way, Genesco, in addition to Journeys, now holds brands such as Little Burgundy and Johnston and & Murphy, although they do pick up additional sales, they've actually got licensed footwear agreements with certain brands, like Levi's and Dockers, among others, who are also essentially mall staples, you're just used to seeing them in other retailers. and. You know, I think you could argue that the recent boom in footwear sales might not last forever, and Genesco may be at risk of leaving themselves a bit of exposure due to lack of diversification if the footwear bubble ever does burst. I think that's a conversation for another day in the here and now, at least. The move has appeared to pay off for their bottom line. And speaking of that bottom line, as a company, this quarter, Genesco delivered results far beyond analyst expectations with adjusted earnings per share of $1.05 for this quarter, which was their second quarter of fiscal 2022. They run one year ahead in terms of their fiscal years. Analysts expected a loss of $0.01 per share, so quite a bit of a beat. And, in fact, this beat falls into line with other mall and shopping center-based retailers. Signet Jewelers, American Eagle, who we'll discuss, of course, in a bit, also beating expectations. And Signet, by the way, to digress very quickly, they had a stellar quarter beating bottom line expectations by over 122%. So, generally speaking, we're seeing that mall traffic come back up, at least in terms of people willing to, to spend money even if car counts even if the raw traffic counts aren't up people are spending money in malls once again and even genesco's unadjusted numbers would have produced an earnings beat they scored gap earnings of 74 cents of course they posted a significant loss last year during pandemic conditions that forced closures adjusted losses of a dollar 23 per share in their fiscal second quarter of 2021 And there were several circumstances for them in which they would have liked to open stores a little bit earlier, but the malls in those markets stayed closed, and the malls that held those Journey stores stayed closed. Now, the vast majority of this income for the company did come from Journey's. So if I kind of conflate the two, Journey's and their parent company, Genesco, please forgive me. But Journey's showcased net income of $63.5 million in the quarter. The rest of the company, in terms of net income, lost about $35 million combined. So we see Journeys is where Genesco's bread is buttered. And as a result, it's certainly most instructive for us to look at Journeys' numbers. And more importantly, their numbers against two years ago. And through their lens, the numbers both company-wide and at Journeys are most stellar. First company-wide net sales are up 14% over their fiscal year second quarter of 2020. For Journeys specifically, sales were up 25% over the pandemic affected, quarter two of 2021. It should be noted that Journeys is by far, as we mentioned, their largest brand, not only where they get most of their income, but also where they get most of their revenue. Journeys accounts for 62.4% of the company's revenue, at least they did in this second quarter. Last year's second quarter, they actually accounted for over 70% of Genesco's overall sales. Now comparing against 2019, net sales for the Journeys group were up nearly 10%, in fact 9.9% to be exact, as their 2021 year adds to the evidence, I think, that people are reaching into their pocketbooks to refresh their wardrobe, or at the very least are returning to those malls, to those outdoor shopping centers where Journeys locations are most likely to be found. Sales within licensed brands, by the way, at Genesco were up 260% over last year, which indicates overall strength in demand in footwear in general. And of course, we're talking about those external licenses they hold with the likes of Levi's and Dockers. E-commerce sales are up 97% firm-wide over the past two years, to note digital sales there, although it did take a dip of 23% versus last year. Now, despite the strength that Journeys, in particular, net store closings do continue for Genesco as a whole and for Journeys specifically. After closing a net of 12 stores last fiscal year, that being Journeys stores, they've closed a net of 17 Journeys stores halfway through this one. And Honestly, I think this could reasonably be expected. Even for the strongest of mall-based retailers out there, you still have a lot of lower B-class and then C-class malls that are still struggling to bring in traffic. I was at Lakeview Square Mall in Battle Creek, Michigan recently, and that's a mall that's clearly struggling. It's lost its main anchors. JCPenney, Sears have moved out. In fact, the busiest business there, the busiest non-anchor there was Bath and Body Works. They were the only non-anchor store that actually had customers in the store. Even the Claire's had recently closed. So it was No surprise to me that a Journeys had recently closed there. Absolutely understandable. You have a mall less than 50% occupancy. And Journeys, as well as they did this quarter, they aren't the driving force behind people going to the malls. There was an off-price store there. There was a Dunham Sports there, which is a big chain in Michigan, as well as in kind of the Mid-South area. And there was also a larger shoe store there. But that's pretty much it in terms of national credit tenants at this particular mall so no surprise that journeys is moving out of these type of malls even as their business continues to bring in sales as a result of their footwear focus now in terms of the call unfortunately while we were expecting to hear some maybe macro level insight as to the increased sales versus 2019 What we got was a lot of internal attribution instead. CEO Mimi Vaughn gave platitudes about the company's strong competitive position, strategic course, and so forth. And we've noted that, of course, this is often the case for retailers having a good quarter when they have a bad quarter. It's weather, it's mall traffic, it's whatever macro factor you want to blame that's to blame. In this case, it wasn't the returning traffic to malls. It wasn't people opening up their pocketbooks. For apparel on a macro level, it was what the company has done internally to drive those sales, which you certainly get. you got to keep those shareholders happy. Still kind of a disappointment to us to not see more macro level attribution on the call. Still, they did mention that profits generally for them were driven by an increase in full price sales, echoing what others in the apparel and footwear space have said discounting seeing that being far less of a thing at mainline retailers in 2021 now the issue of internal attribution versus external could also be seen in american eagles press conference and their press release to be fair as we move on to american eagle there's some internal attribution to go around for their very strong quarter i feel like because this is a retailer that's been doing well for the last five six years and it This quarter actually saw them set an all-time record for second quarter revenue at $1.19 billion. The 35% revenue increases they saw as a company overall, that was fairly consistent across all their brands that they hold. Now, some similarities were seen with Journeys, as the company was very clear that there was a low rate of discounted sales, high rates of full price sales complementing reduced promotions, therefore you're seeing a lot larger margins still the press release led with jay schottenstein their ceo crediting and i quote the strength of our brands outstanding product and a leading customer experience across selling channels nothing again about mall or shopping center traffic in general increasing though in that press release now there was a key area in which american eagle did perform better than most in the space and that's fueling continued digital sales where other such clothing retailers saw double-digit decreases in digital revenue, just like Journeys did, it was down just 5% for American Eagle as a result of digital demand actually increasing 9%. They did see a slight drop in ticket size, resulting in that digital revenue falling. Now, digital revenue on a two-year basis is up 66% over 2019, reflecting their more mature standing in the space than, say, Journeys, while In-store revenue is up 4% over 2019, again, very solid on that two-year stack, which led to the earnings beat we discussed, $0.60 per share on an adjusted basis versus $0.55 per share expected. That said, despite the earnings beat, the biggest win for the company, at least according to them, was inventory levels. They intentionally let inventory levels sag last year, of course, but inventory was back up for this quarter 20%. However, the 20% increase is behind overall sales growth, which the company says is intentional as they attempt to optimize inventory levels versus 2019 where they were higher compared to sales and something that the company generally wanted to trim back on. And this is something we've seen from a lot of apparel retailers, although not explicitly discussed on this show outside of a few interviews. In some ways, the pandemic allowed certain retailers to kind of hit the inventory reset button and use their optimization technology, of which there is more of it and is more accurate in 2021 versus 2019. They're able to use that from basically scratch, an essential scratch start as far as inventory is concerned. One final note for American Eagle, across all brands, they've opened 12 net new stores during the 2021 fiscal year. It was 16 net new stores, by the way, in the second quarter alone as they did close four in the first quarter. They also renovated eight stores during the quarter. And so you look at this compared to the net store closures that you're seeing with Genesco and you don't want to generalize, but it has seemed to be a general trend over the past five to six years that American Eagle as a whole has been better about adjusting their portfolio on the fly. Exiting struggling indoor malls, increasingly opening stores in popular new outdoor shopping centers. And so we're not quite seeing the commercial real estate optimization now for American Eagle that companies like Genesco and their brands like Journeys have had to undertake. And I think that's interesting of note is American Eagle certainly in a growth pattern. But you look at maybe all of the mall-based apparel retailers and you have to think American Eagle certainly on the balance of the last five to six years, kind of winning whatever race exists there. And this quarter, more evidence of that. Well, after this break, we'll be joined by Erica Blair, program manager with the Rural Grocery Initiative. She'll discuss not only the Rural Grocery Initiative, but various facets of rural grocery that might not come to mind, including how grocers are getting around order minimums from their distributors. It's a fascinating interview, and we hope you'll stick around. I want to take a bit of time to address all the digital leaders out there. How would it feel to not only know what your customer is experiencing, but how many others out there are experiencing the same thing too? I think it's about time that we put customers really at the forefront of decisions getting ahead with real-time insights way before a code freeze. Now, of course, summer is wrapping up, although it doesn't feel like it's wrapping up here in Colorado, seeing highs of 90s this week, which is far warmer than it typically is. But realistically, the holiday season is upon us. The holiday season already has begun if you're a retailer. And moreover, holiday e-commerce sales this year are expected to surpass even those high levels we saw last year and your retailers should be prepared to capture every customer revenue opportunity and with quantum metric you can be ready their unique approach to the digital customer experience helps today's top retailers and e-commerce brands quickly identify and prioritize the big and small revenue opportunities that keep customers engaged and coming back they help retailers we talk about all the time on the podcast we're talking about big fish here likes of tractor supply company Crate and Barrel, Bass Pro Shops. They should also be helping your retailer out too. You should look at reducing customer friction. Everyone wants to reduce customer friction out there, but with this data, you can get an inside track to it. You can increase conversions and you can personalize the shopping experience. And if you want a sneak peek, you could visit them at quantummetric.com slash pod offer, all one word, and see if you qualify to receive their 12 days of insights offer with code RETAILFOCUS, also all one word. This offer gives you 12-day access to their platform coupled with a bespoke insight report that will help you identify where customers are struggling or maybe engaging with your digital product. Restrictions do apply once again, quantummetric.com slash offer, code RETAILFOCUS, all one word, and that URL and code we're in the show notes for this week. You really should check it out. This offer only goes on for a limited time. So once again, quantummetric.com slash pot offer. Enter code retail focus. We've talked about it ad nauseum on the show, but we truly feel that the health of mid and small sized market retail is the best indicator of overall retail health in the United States. However, this sector of retail isn't without challenges, and this is particularly true for grocery where margins are already slim even in the largest of markets. However, we've seen a movement of late towards reopening and developing grocery stores in small towns that would otherwise be considered food deserts. And here to discuss dynamics of rural grocery is Erica Blair. Erica is a program manager with the Rural Grocery Initiative based out of Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas. Erica, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So first, just so our listeners know a bit about the perspective that you bring, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what the Rural Grocery Initiative does and kind of the, the scope of the different programs and businesses that you work with.
0: Yeah, definitely. So just to take us back, in 2006, there was a unit at Kansas State University that was holding all of these different listening sessions across the state of kansas trying to identify the different challenges that rural communities were facing and during those listening sessions the thing that kept coming to the top was the need for greater support for rural grocery stores and so why you know were all of these communities so concerned about their local grocery store well they really are anchor businesses for these communities they're a primary source of jobs, they contribute to the local tax base, they help to retain residents as well as attract new residents. They, of course, are a source of healthy food. They are also these gathering spaces where people can come together and connect with each other and create social capital. So, you know, when a grocery store in these communities closes, it really can be an existential problem for the town itself. It becomes much harder to attract residents. Other businesses in town can also feel the effect of these grocery stores closing. You know, you can imagine if a grocery store closes, people are gonna have to start shopping for groceries outside of town. And they're probably going to get other things outside of town as well. So, you know, there are all of these other indirect effects that happen when a grocery store closes. So out of those listening sessions and hearing about those different challenges and concerns that communities were having, the Rural Grocery Initiative was created and we've been around since about 2007. We are housed within Kansas State Research and Extension. And the mission is really to help sustain these locally owned rural grocery stores. And so we do that in a few different ways. We provide technical assistance. That's kind of just a fancy way of saying we are providing you know, different resources and information to existing grocers, as well as people who want to get into grocery or communities who are trying to figure out how do we bring the grocery store back to town, so kind of helping with strategizing and and thinking through those different options. We conduct different research on the challenges that rural grocers face and the best practices that are in use. And then we host various educational workshops and webinars, and we also host a biannual summit that brings grocers together and other practitioners together to network and learn from each other.
1: Some great background there about why rural grocery is important and some of the ways in which you serve rural grocery. I'm kind of curious, as you look out across the landscape, what is the state of rural grocery currently in 2021?
0: Well, I think yeah the state of rural grocery in 2021 we're seeing some of the same challenges that grocers have always faced i would say some of the big challenges include it's a very labor intensive job it's a very physical job people are having to work really long hours there are you know high operating costs With grocery stores, especially when you think about all of the refrigeration that's required, they tend to have high utility bills and overall low profit margins. As you mentioned in the intro, the grocery industry as a whole has an average net profit of just 1%. So those challenges are still here today. I think that with rural grocery stores, we're seeing some other challenges, some other trends that are compounding those problems. So that would include, you know, rural communities are experiencing declining populations. So there's just a smaller customer base that rural grocers have. And then we're also seeing a lot of competition, especially with this major growth of dollar stores in rural communities and other places that are in economic decline. So those are some new trends that we're seeing more recently. And between 2008 and 2018, my office was actually tracking the number of grocery store closures across rural Kansas. And I believe we were just looking at communities with a population of 2,500 or less. And during that 10-year period, 50 grocery stores closed and didn't reopen. So that's kind of another trend that we're seeing. Another thing that we're seeing is that many grocery owners are actually baby boomers, and so they're looking to retire soon. So finding a successor can also be a challenge. And, you know, selling the business can be difficult, especially because we're not seeing as many grocery stores being passed down to children. So it used to be like the grocery store would be in the family. It would be a family business for generations. And and that's just not happening as much today.
1: So you mentioned the store closures and the idea that, you know, hey, some of these stores have closed. Some of these stores are looking to transition ownership. Looking across the kind of the news cycle, it seems like we've seen at least a handful of rural grocery openings over the past few months, not just in Kansas, but also throughout the country. And I know Kansas specifically, one recently opened in Humboldt, Kansas, as an example. And I know that's been in the works kind of for about a year. Where, generally speaking, does the drive to open or maybe reopen one of those closed rural grocery stores come from? Is it a matter of city leaders stepping up saying, hey, we need this back in the community? Is it a prospective store owner saying, hey, I would like to open a store in this community, I think it could be successful? Where does that drive come from, generally?
0: Yeah, I think the drive comes from a variety of places, I think. So, the example of Humboldt, that came from the independent store operators, the store owners. There was a couple that had meat cutting and butchering experience and expertise. They wanted to open a retail location for uh, meat processing and packing business. And so when the previous store in Humboldt closed a few years back, they saw that as an opportunity to kind of combine their original vision with opening the grocery store back up. So that's kind of an interesting model. It's a diversified business. So there you had entrepreneurs who were wanting to open up a grocery store. But we've also seen a lot of push from city leadership, from community members themselves, from economic development groups. So just to give you a couple of examples, there was another store that opened late March and early April of this year in Caney, Kansas. And that community, I believe, had been without a grocery store for about 10 years, and people were having to drive 30 miles round trip just to reach groceries. So this community in the city really came together to decide we want to open a grocery store back up in town. And that is actually now a municipally owned store in Caney. So you're seeing that push from city leadership. We've seen this push from like I said, economic developers who have been strategizing, how do we promote economic and population growth in our community? And one of the ways that they're seeing that is through the grocery store. There's another example in Plains, Kansas, where community members came together, created a community foundation so that they could develop a nonprofit grocery store. And that store in Plains they broke ground recently and they have plans to be open in October. So you're seeing that drive to open a grocery store from several different angles.
1: So I'm kind of curious because we talk about municipally owned grocery stores. We talk about a not-for-profit grocery store breaking ground in Plains, Kansas. What are some of the unique aspects of ownership that isn't just individual ownership as the circumstance would be in Humboldt? What are some different, I don't want to say maybe challenges, but aspects to getting those stores developed and open that municipally owned grocery stores might have versus just that individual owner?
0: Yeah, I think so. Over the years, we've been seeing those different innovative community-supported grocery models pop up across Kansas, often in places that haven't had a grocery store for a while or in places where the owner of the current grocery store wants to transition out of the business. One of the kind of distinctive characteristics about those different innovative community supported models is that you really do need community buy-in to get it off the ground. Any grocery store really needs community buy-in to be sustained over the long term, but those different models are really asking for the community to step up in the initial planning phase, fundraising phase of the project as well. So I think those are some differences in terms of having an independent operator versus a community owned or community supported grocery store. But those those innovative models have some significant benefits. For example, what we've seen in Kansas has been cooperatives where the community comes together and buys shares of the store to help raise capital, nonprofit grocery stores, municipally owned grocery stores. We've seen public private partnerships where there may be different entities involved in owning different parts of the business. We've even seen a school run grocery store, and I think part of the reason for going that route is to kind of help spread the burden so it's not all just on one or two people for instance if you take a look at the i'll give you an example of a public private partnership grocery store in st john kansas where they were trying to get a grocery store in town after their previous store closed the economic development group was very involved in kind of spearheading this effort and they actually own the building where their current grocery store is. So that's kind of a benefit where that burden is spread among different entities, right? So the economic development group is kind of in charge of maintaining that building. That's something that the operator doesn't have to think about. And if that operator, if the grocery store owner wants to leave that community at some point down the road, then the city of St. John They are, when they're trying to attract a different person to the grocery business, that next person doesn't have to have so much upfront capital to invest in an entire building. They don't have to purchase the entire building. So it's kind of spreading that out. There's, you know, the potential to have different funding streams available. Let's say if it's a nonprofit grocery store or a municipally owned grocery store, they might because they have a different tax status, might be eligible for different sources of funding. So I think there are some different benefits, including with a community supported model, there's often less of a drive or less pressure, I should say, to make a profit. So for instance, we've seen school run grocery stores where there is an educational component to the store. So that kind of plays a primary role in making just meeting their costs, being able to pay the bills, that's what they want to do. And so there's less pressure to make a profit.
1: The next thing I wanted to ask is based off of talking about some of the different ownership models, different ways of getting stores reopened or ensuring that stores stay open in these communities In these communities that you've talked about, largely under 2,000 people. So we're talking about really small markets here. I'm curious, outside of ownership structure, what are some creative solutions or maybe best practices that you've seen grocers in rural areas come up with in order to maintain their business status?
0: Yeah. So in those small communities, one of the challenges that grocers sometimes face is meeting the minimum buying requirement of their distributor. So sometimes distributors will say, you need to buy X number of dollars worth of groceries per week in order for us to serve your store. And a lot of the times the grocers, because they're serving a small community, they just don't need that much. They don't need to stock that much on their shelves. So meeting those minimum buying requirements can be a challenge. So one of the kind of creative solutions that we've seen is having grocers actually combine their orders so that they can order from that distributor. So that's one kind of creative solution that we've seen. Another thing is that grocers can partner with other businesses. We've seen grocery stores partner with hardware stores, or they've added to their offerings. So we've seen a grocery store with a floral shop attached, grocery stores with delis and cafes, and those different businesses or those different offerings can really help to bring more foot traffic to that area, bringing convenience to the customer, you know? So if somebody wants to go in to the grocery store, just there's a cafe attached. They want to grab a cup of coffee. Often they're leaving with something else that they pick up in the store as well. So those can be really helpful practices.
1: I want to discuss now the the benefits of having a rural grocery store or a grocery store in a rural community because you talked about, I believe, Caney earlier where rural shoppers for years had to make a 30-mile round trip just to get access to groceries. So, of course, more convenient access to groceries and fresh food is certainly one benefit. What are some other benefits communities can reap from the fact that they have a grocery store in their rural community?
0: Yeah, I think that one thing is that there aren't, you know, these outside headquarters for those locally owned grocery stores. So all of the jobs that you have at a local grocery store are local. You don't have really profits going to investors outside of the community. So, you know, various studies have shown that locally owned stores keep more dollars circulating in town. So I think those are just some of the economic benefits that the local grocery ownership can bring to a community. But then I think there's another part of it as well, where sometimes the locally owned store has greater ties and greater interaction with the community. So we've seen grocery stores that display artwork from local community members. We have seen that Grocery stores, locally owned grocery stores, often are donating food to different community events. There's a grocery store in a small town. I want to say the town is actually, I think has a population of like 50 people, just 50 people. And they host a monthly music night, which brings people from out of town to that venue. And so I think for those local you know, grocery stores in rural communities, it's not all just about dollars and cents. There is, I think, a greater sense of commitment to the broader community. And, and I think that there can be stronger and deeper bonds and deeper relationships as a result.
1: So, we've talked about the last 20 years, and specifically, we've talked a lot about the last 10 years where Rural Grocery Initiative has that concrete data. But I want to look out over the next 10 years, if you will, as difficult as sometimes that might seem since we don't even know what's going on next week a lot of times. But what do you see as the future of rural grocery in areas, whether they be like Kansas or the Great Plains or pretty much anywhere in the country?
0: Yeah, I think that we are probably going to see grocers in these communities having to be innovators. I think that we will need to kind of reimagine the grocery store's relationship to the community and the community's involvement with the grocery store. So, kind of like what we were talking about earlier with different ownership models, those different ownership models are often really strongly tied in with the community. The community is investing in some way in having that grocery store in town. You know, the community members are stakeholders. And so there's a commitment on their behalf as well to making sure that the grocery store is successful, that they're shopping at the store, that they're, they've they got some skin in the game as well. So I think we'll see potentially different ownership models. As my office has worked with different communities and have we've shared what these different options are, it's interesting. Communities are kind of picking and choosing different aspects of those models and combining them to create something of their own that works for their own community. So it's not like this one size fits all solution for rural communities, but we are seeing that innovation, we're seeing more partnerships. And I think that's just going to continue into the future.
1: Well, it's been great to have this discussion about an aspect of retail that doesn't often get a lot of national press. And once again, Erica Blair, program manager with the Rural Grocery Initiative. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts.
1: We thank Erica for joining us here on the show. And in our final segment, we're going to be looking ahead to a retailer that... Well, they also gave earnings this week, but more importantly, they have new leadership at the helm. We're going to keep in apparel and talk about Duluth Trading here, Duluth Trading Company. Now, their net sales did increase 8.6% year over year, 22.3%, by the way, on a two-year stack because they are mostly e-commerce. They do have brick-and-mortar stores, of course, but because they are mostly e-commerce, they didn't feel so heavily the effects of the pandemic last year. But the reason I'm looking ahead is because Sam Sato, their new CEO, very experienced retail mind, by the way, revealed their big damn blueprint. That's what they're calling it during this earnings call this past week. And the blueprint includes basically five things that all to me sound like, somewhat generic platitudes and so part of the reason I'm looking ahead to them is seeing exactly how they're being executed upon. These five parts of the blueprint are begin with a digital first mindset which is interesting because they've gone on this run of opening stores because markets in which they open stores tend to do better. That was actually the case this past quarter. Sales in markets where they had stores increased around 19% versus net sales increasing just 8.6%. So it's interesting that they want to begin with a digital-first mindset because they basically had a digital-first mindset for the last decade or so of the company. Number two is intensify efforts to optimize Duluth Trading's owned DTC channels. Number three is evolve the company's multi-brand platform as a new pathway to grow the business. Number four is carefully test and learn to unlock long term growth potential. And number five, increase and in some areas accelerate investments to future proof the business. And again, you look at all these things and if you follow Duluth Trading Company at all over the past few years, you'd know that these are things that they already seem to be executing on. So you really wonder what the new CEO and the new leadership team has in mind as far as how they're going to execute on this and and what these changes will mean for the retailer. Now, one thing I can tell you from having studied retailers for a, a long time, especially retailers that go on some sort of a downturn, is that oftentimes these downturns occur because a leader takes over a previously successful firm implements a bunch of changes, the changes don't go over well, there's another leadership change, and you just get caught in this cycle of repeated leadership changes, repeated blueprint changes, if you will, until the retailer eventually either falls flat, sometimes they recover from it, but sometimes they end up ceasing to exist altogether. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's the future at all for Duluth Trading Company, but it seems interesting that... You see this blueprint that is very, very similar to the blueprint that they've had to this point. So the reason I'm looking ahead is basically how will Sam Sato's Duluth Trading Company differ from the Duluth Trading Company we've seen over the past five to ten years? Will brick and mortar locations continue to pop up on the regular for Duluth or will they curtail that and focus more on their digital channels, which I think most would say are already fairly mature? course there's always room for improvement in terms of extending their brand across all channels both digital and in-store and making sure digital and in-store work seamlessly I think most retailers could work on that certainly but I do think it's kind of intriguing to see a blueprint laid out that looks very similar to the blueprint that Duluth already had in place it might be a good thing in fact for Duluth because of what I just mentioned because Rapid change for a successful company can yield bad results sometimes. So just something to keep an eye on here over really the next couple of years or as long as Sam Sato is at the company. Well, that'll do it for us here on the show. A big thanks to Erica Blair joining us as our interview guest. And a big thanks for Quantum Metric partnering with us to bring you this podcast. Coming up next week, we'll be joined by Eric Miao. He's the Chief Customer Officer at Attentive. We're going to talk about how retailers are using SMS or text messaging, changes to how retailers have been using text messaging over the past couple of years, and the future of retailers using text to connect with their customers. Data suggests certainly that customers do want to hear from brands, but only in an authentic way, which can be kind of a catch-22 if you're a brand and he'll talk about ways that brands can maneuver around that or kind of toe that very thin line regarding customer expectations. So that's coming up next week. We'll be back with you approximately seven days from now.
0: This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.